Uh, yeah, I'm Lou Mormon, and I'm co-founder and general partner of ScaleWorks, which is a $60 million venture equity fund here in San Antonio. You're listening to Action Path, hosted by Steve Cunningham. Luz, thanks so much for being here. Well, great to be here. So uh, we're going to get into the, the book, The Halo Effect, uh, as we move along here. But let's start uh, at the beginning. Who are you and what do you do? Uh, yeah, I'm Lou Mormon, and I'm co-founder and general partner of ScaleWorks, which is a $60 million venture equity fund here in San Antonio. We own and operate six SaaS companies that we have moved here from around the country and uh, relocated them and are working to grow them as quickly as possible. Awesome. And we're going to get into, uh, a, you know, you've got some very interesting things with your model that I, I know you're going to explain as we go along. And I'm excited to do that. I think I was actually a customer of a couple of your companies oh, along, you. along the way. So let, let's, let's go back to the beginning. Where did you grow up? I am a San Antonio native. So born and raised here in San Antonio. Had a great childhood, like it here. I uh, went away to school when I was 15 years old, to high school, and spent a lot of time in a lot of places. So uh, I went to high school in the Northeast. I went to college in the South. I went to graduate school on the West Coast. Uh, and then I was in New York uh, working in management consulting. And I came home for, I don't know, some sort of holiday. I don't remember if it was Easter or Thanksgiving or something and ended up meeting Graham, was introduced to Graham Weston. And I was looking to join a tech startup. I'd been doing consulting in the internet space and was looking to, to join a startup. And Rackspace had just gotten going. It was about a year into the journey Rackspace. There were probably about 25 people uh, when I joined. And uh, I ended up getting persuaded to move from New York to come here and back to my hometown and try and uh, get a startup off the ground. And, and, you know, one thing led to another. And we had a lot of ups and downs, but it was a heck of a journey. Um, let's unpack some of that. So you your first job out of college uh, was as a management consultant. Was that your first job? I actually, so I, my, I spent my whole childhood wanting to be a lawyer. Um, there's a whole another story about about why I wanted to be a lawyer, but my I had a grandfather who's a federal judge, and um, so I always thought I wanted to be a lawyer. I've always been very interested in politics, and uh, I, I'm somewhat argumentative, uh, some will tell you, and uh, love a good debate. So I spent, you know, I, I really wanted to go to law school. I ended up going to law school. I was in law school in Silicon Valley in 1997 when the internet was born, really, and getting going. I'd always been interested in business as well and got just really interested in, in being in business. So I, I went to law school pretty much right after uh, undergrad. And uh, after after law school, I just decided there's no way I can be a lawyer. I, I, you know, I sort of think lawyers have the unfortunate duty of dealing with, with all the things that can go wrong in a business. And I'm really interested in the things that can go right. I'm sort of opportunity driven, not, not risk oriented. And so I decided to not do anything in law and look for something to do in business. And so my, my third year of law school, the economy was going really well. I think I was the only person in my law school class who didn't have a job in the spring of my third year because I turned down all my law, law school offers or law firm offers. And I started looking for a job. And I ended up getting a job at McKinsey, which is one of the top management consulting firms out there. I didn't know that much about management consulting, but uh, it looked like a really good way to sort of project myself into the business world. Um, and some days I, I really wonder if I had not gotten that job, I would have probably joined a startup in Silicon Valley in 97. And uh, who knows where that would have led me. Yeah. It would have been interesting. But I had a good experience at McKinsey and 
Um, but very quickly realized I wanted to be in a small company. Um, I didn't really want to be far from the action, uh, advising in an abstract way. I wanted to be have my hands dirty and really working on a business. And so after I was there for a few years and uh, sort of got promoted to, to be manager and, and did the manager job for a little bit, I decided let's go join a, a small company and see if we can build something. And so as you're working on McKinsey, well, first I'll backtrack for a second. I was also a lo- I was a lawyer for exactly one week, so you and I have a, a similar background there. Uh, I did not want to grow up and be a lawyer. I, <laughs> I used it as a way to not get a job between undergrad and figuring out what I wanted to do with my life. Um, That's another common use case for law school. It is a very good, by time. It is a very good use case. Uh, I've noticed more and more people doing that and actually cashing that that shit in. But uh, so you're at, you're at McKinsey. Are you working with large companies? Or are you working with small companies? And I guess what I'm really trying to get to is how did you know you wanted to work in a startup specifically? You know, I, I would say, look, McKinsey has um, got a great reputation and, and they're hired generally by large companies because it's outrageously expensive to, to hire them. And they're usually hired, at least in many of the cases I was hired for, were to do either some sort of hardcore analytical project where they want to just put a bunch of horsepower on it really quickly to sort of solve some problem or to eat, to gain validation for some big decision they're going to make um, so that they can sort of go back and say, we did our due diligence. And even if it doesn't go well, uh, look, we got the experts to tell us that it was the right thing to do. And so I, did, I ended up finding that I just we just weren't having that big of an impact. I, I just never felt like the work we did really made that big of a difference. And we had no... We had no uh, decision rights in terms of whether something was going to actually get executed or actually get done. And we, we, our, our work product was a PowerPoint deck. And so this is, this is what McKinsey consultants produce is PowerPoint decks. And they hope that it influences someone and persuades someone. And sometimes it does and sometimes it doesn't. And so I just, I really wanted to be much more, um, just in the, in the middle of making decisions and making things happen. And I think probably small company, I was drawn to it just because I'd been, most of my clients were in the internet space, um, did a project for AOL, I advised on the AOL Netscape merger, which dates me, obviously, and um, worked for Compact Computer. Um, so it done a bunch of stuff in the, in the tech space. And this was the, the, you know, the dot-com era. And so start going into a startup was what kind of everyone wanted to do. And, it just looked appealing to me, and I really did want to be close to the action. So let's jump into the story. Then, how did you how did you meet Graham, and how did that all play out? Well, I was um, I had a family friend who was great friends with the CFO of Rackspace at the time, Quincy Lee. Who it's a funny story because Quincy went to Graham and said, "I want to invest in your company." And Graham said to him, I'll let you invest, but you got to be CFO for a little while. And so Quincy did that. And Quincy's now a extremely successful hedge fund manager and has done really well. Super smart guy. And so this, this family friend said, you got to call Quincy. And I called Quincy and I was home and said, look, I'd love to hear what y'all are up to. And I'm looking to join a startup. I'm, I'm really looking in New York. I was living in New York, but I'm open to lots of being in lots of different places. And I ended up... Um, really enjoying meeting Quincy and Dirk and Pat, the founders, and then Morris and Graham and I sort of hit it off. And one thing led to another and I did it. You know, I think that what's interesting about it is I was looking at lots of different startups and I think that this will, this will tie back to the book once we get into it. But, you know, it was crazy days. This was, this was in the fall of 1999 and there was just mania on every, 
front in terms of the internet. And it was really hard to figure out what was going to win, uh, what kinds of models, what kind of, what kind of businesses were going to win on the internet. But I knew the internet was going to win. And so going to an infrastructure company just felt like a way to, you know, have tons of demand no matter what. Um, there was going to be so much change and the internet was going to be figured out, but the internet was going to be there and it was going to matter. And so it's a little bit like, you know, selling Levi's or pickaxes in the gold rush. And, you know, those guys did really well, whether they, whether gold was discovered by their clients or not. And so I was drawn to that concept and it would be a good place to sort of really see how the internet was going to play out. And, you know, infrastructure was going to do well. So that, that's a little bit of what I like the people. I like the opportunity. It was interesting to come back home and see if we could build something interesting in my hometown. So it had a nice mix of things and I decided to make the move. And so here we are today. You're on the other side of you know, working for Backspace. Like you said, you're, you're building and operating this fund that's doing amazing, great things for you know, traditional startups, but also you've got some interesting things going on around funding companies that otherwise might not get funding, which I'm sure we'll get into. Um, why don't we jump into the ideas of the book and then you can, you can walk us through, because I think you said you've applied this. We were talking before we uh, press record here. You've applied it in a number of different areas. So why don't we talk about the idea first and then we can walk through exactly in where you applied those ideas. So let's talk about the halo effect. Yeah. So the halo effect, um, I, the author's name is Phil Rosenzweig. I, I think that's how you pronounce it. Uh, I read the book. I don't know. It's, it's probably a 15 year old book. So it's been around a long time and it's, it's a little bit of an anti-business book. So it's, it's kind of ridicules a lot of the business books that are out there that are helping people try and find this magic formula to how to build a winning business. And the core idea is really that, um, when we look at business, business success and failures, we're, we are so inclined to look at and tell stories about brilliant people and brilliant tactics that are happening inside the company rather than look at the context of what's going on around the company and what trend they might be a part of or what sort of broader dynamics are helping propel them. So the, the book tells a, I mean, and th this will resonate with everyone who reads anything about business stories because this happens all the time, but the book tells a story about Cisco in the late 90s. Um, and, and those of you who are around will remember that in the late 90s, everyone was saying Cisco was going to be the first trillion dollar company. It didn't quite make it. But in the late 90s, it was, it was, you know, the most valuable company. Uh, it, you know, because of the rise of telephony and the internet, it just, it just boomed. And there were articles after articles written about how it was the best run company in the, in the country. And so their culture was great. Their management style was great. Their people training was great. Every single great thing was written about them in terms of how well they had done. Fast forward a couple of years, dot-com bust happens. Cisco has a really hard time. And suddenly every article is written and says, hey, these guys uh, got arrogant. They had bad management. They hired the wrong people. They were bad at, uh, they were bad at acquiring companies. And all of this is really looking back and trying to come up with a story about what really happened. And the truth of the matter is that Cisco had a great product at the right time in sort of the market dynamic, and then the reverse happened. And it doesn't mean that within that sort of halo, which they existed, both good and bad, there couldn't have been better or worse performance. But the halo itself was the driving factor, not all these little elements that were happening inside a company. So... Um, I think that this is just one of those things where it is, is, he, he goes through also two very famous business books, In Search of Excellence and Good to Great, which are two of the great business books of all time. In the 80s, In Search of Excellence was sort of what every management guru, you know, talked about In Search of Excellence and then Good to Great. And all the companies that were profiled in those books, 
they were the best performers the last 15 years. And those authors went in and found, they sort of put projected their own stories on top of them in terms of what happened. But if you look at those companies in the 15 years after the books were written, they they underperformed the market and their peers. And so was there something there or not? You know, it's just hard to say. I, I you know, I, I think... Um, I think that it's one of the things that's really taught me to sort of try and find places where it's easy, easy to succeed, where you have tailwinds rather than hard to succeed is that it's, it's somewhat humbling in terms of, I, I realize that a lot of the successes I've been a part of is because I've been in a good context. Um, I've been in an infrastructure company when the internet was booming. That is a, that is a good place to be. And we picked a very compelling difference, fanatical support, that really resonated with our customers. And by the way, it made leading and managing that company very easy because all the employees knew exactly what mattered and the customers really cared about it. And so I think we were part of two very impactful halos that made us look very good. And by the way, when Amazon came along and the hosting world changed and AWS was a radically more compelling product than traditional hosting, and all the halos that we were part of started to become weaker, it got harder for us. And, you know, you can say, well, we missed it or we didn't adjust fast enough. And probably some of those things are true. But the halo of Amazon was so powerful and very, very difficult to adjust to. And so I, I think that it's one of those things where it's, it's just sort of saying, make sure you're finding, you know, situations where you can succeed, where your where your talents can, can succeed. And, you know, Warren Buffett has a quote where he says that, a manager with a great reputation meets a bad business model, uh, the business model will win. The reputation won't. And this is just true. This is just absolutely true. And so, um, you, you know, it doesn't mean that people don't matter. It doesn't mean that having talent uh, doesn't matter. Uh, but it's, I think it's really about how can you go out and make sure you're part of halos where it's easy to succeed. It reminds me a lot of a hockey quote about you know, Wayne Gretzky. And he would say, I, would, I skate to where the puck is going to be, not where it is. Yeah. And it seems like if you look at those books that are talking about, you know, like you said, imposing their story on something that may or may not be true, no way to prove whether or not it was the leader or, you know, level five leadership or whatever concept it was. Um, but what you can easily figure out is what dynamics were going on in the market. And if yeah. it's, if there's a hundred percent of the value, maybe, I will ask you the question, like what, what percentage of it is the halo and what percentage of it is obviously some, some of it has to do with people and leadership, but how much of it is being at the right place at the you right know, every time? Every situation is different, of course, but I, I, I tend to think that halos are a lot more powerful than we think. A lot more powerful than we think. I mean, look, I'll, I'll give you a, a, a modern day example is think of uh, the Facebook, Facebook executives. Um, two years ago, Sheryl Sandberg could do no wrong. She was the most effective executive in tech, had taken this unruly thing and really turned it into a well-oiled machine. And everything she was doing, you know, there was just could do, do no wrong. And today, they're facing some really difficult times and she's being highly criticized. Well, is she a much worse executive than she was two years ago? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. She's just in a much more complicated situation. And she was in a much easier situation before, which is that she had a billion users and they had started to monetize it. And I'm not saying anyone could do it, but it was very a much easier situation than a lot of other tech executives had at the time. So I think that, you know, one of the things about Halo, that the whole concept of Halo effects, it's just, it's how we take a general impression and we will sort of impose lots of specific insights about them. And so he also gives examples about politicians, for example. So, you know, uh, 
George W. Bush was not very popular before 9-11. 9-11 happened and his ratings went through the roof and people said he's handling foreign policy very well. But they also were saying he handled the economy well. He was handling every issue on every dimension. He was viewed as handling things better. Well, was he really better at handling things every single area? No, of course not. But people had a general impression of him being more effective and it, and it just spills over and it creates a halo. Uh, and this is just, this is just one of the, our human blindness and weaknesses and biases that we, that we sort of tend to create a general impression of things and we impute positive things to all of them. I mean, think about when you, when you interview someone who's from Harvard. Uh, you know they have high IQ probably because they went to Harvard, but that probably makes you think they're a better, they're more entrepreneurial than they are, or they're uh, better with people than they are. You probably start to impose, you start to give them a lot of benefit of the doubt on things that really have nothing to do with them getting into Harvard. It's just, it's just, this is just a bias that we have, and it's, 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 and it, we fall for it all the time. And so, as somebody who's now on the other, you've seen the light. You know, you know about this bias. What what do we do about it? And maybe maybe it's, uh, talk about uh, the context of Rackspace was doing really well. All of a sudden, Amazon comes in, and that halo is maybe I don't know what the right analogy is lifted from Rackspace and put on Amazon. What do you do using that knowledge? Well, I mean, I think you know part of part. I'm I am sort of. I'm obsessed with strategy and, um, you know, strategy is really about what companies do different than their competitors. And, you know, I, I think that the, the halo effect, really one of the biggest implications of it is that it, how do you, how do you figure out a strategy where life gets easy? Um, you know, if, if Rackspace had decided to be the cheapest hoster, that is, that is not a great halo. It's a, that's, a, that's making life very hard for yourself. And I think that sort of the fact that we had we had spent a lot of time to figure out what is a compelling attribute that customers really care about and they're willing to pay for, and then we really executed well and 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 created organized the entire company around it, it made life easy. And so I think it's about sort of how do you create inside your company sort of an obsession with figuring out how to create tailwinds behind your business. And I think that this is where strategic choice just makes an incredible difference is that how, how do you go figure out differentiation for your business uh, in a powerful way? And if you have one that is not working, spend a lot of time trying to figure out one. Yeah. Obviously a very compelling uh, idea Yeah, for, you know, obviously when you're in a big company trying to figure that out, you know, you got to, you can't outcompete Amazon on price because their whole strategy is we're going to put you out of business if you try to do that. I, I just think it ends up being one of those things where I think people, think if we work harder at execute people or we hire the smartest people that will go win. And and those are all nice things to have. And they, they make that they, they, they will make doing things easier. But the most important thing is do you have the right ideas? Are you are are you operating in a world where the ideas will actually work? The ideas actually work. I mean that that is that that's just the the hard thing to figure out. I mean I you know I think about uh, Pandora versus Spotify. So, you know, Pandora uh, has an idea about creating radio stations, on-demand radio stations. And um, it's, a, it's a great idea. And it, it's a maybe a billion-dollar idea. Um, and it was very popular. But Spotify had the idea of unlimited music, um, all the unlimited music you could possibly want from every artist all the time. And, yes, it was double the price, but it was five times the value to the customer. And it ended up being a $50 billion idea. And I just don't, I'm not convinced that, are the people inside Spotify smarter? Do they have a better culture? Do they do, do they do better performance reviews? Do they do, I don't know. Maybe, maybe. I'm sure that if we did a study or wrote an article about them, we would go find that they do a lot of those <laughs> things really well. But I will tell you, I think that their idea is just better. 
And um, it, it'll, if they have good people, it allows those good people to do even better things. And so I just think that, I just think ideas really matter. And it's not that people don't. And you want to create a culture where good ideas are allowed to flourish and are listened to and people are willing to adjust because good ideas only last so long. I think fanatical support only lasted so long in terms of as being the, a dominant idea. And you have to be open to change and you have to be flexible and you have to be listening to, to customers and employees. But I think it's a matter of, do you have an organization that is really open to finding the best ideas? That was one of the things I was thinking about as you were talking. Like there, there's this, there's a time element to this. Like your idea, you, the idea has to be the right idea for the right time and place. And eventually that idea is going to be a, a performed by some other idea. So then you need a new idea. You do. And so how do you create that culture where, first of all, you realize which idea has the best chance of winning, the creating those tailwinds? And then how do you know when it's time to change the idea? And then what do you do? Yeah, I mean, I, I you know, the, these are, these are, is another theme of the book, which is that there is no formula to this stuff. I mean, I think it's, I think that companies generally know when their competitiveness is waning and they can feel it. And I'll tell you, I think that I, I, one of the things I will, I will give us credit at Rackspace, I think that we were scared of Amazon from day one and we could see the power of it. Uh, and were our choices on how to respond to it good enough? Obviously not. Um, but, but we just tried to pivot the company as quickly as possible and to, to come up with our own ideas to counter them. Um, you know, Amazon owned the idea of cloud. So, so in such a dominant way, it's very difficult to figure out how to combat that. And we tried with open source and some other techniques. Um, but, you know, I think, I think this is why paranoid companies do succeed. I think this is why diverse companies succeed. I think diverse companies, that's a sign of an open-minded company, of a, co- of a company that's always looking for uh, different uh, inputs and, and trying to think about what's around the corner. And I think companies that don't celebrate successes too much succeed better than others. And it's a harder company to be in, but uh, these are the kinds of companies that continue to evolve uh, generation over generation. And um, yeah, I just sort of think you have to constantly be testing whether your ideas are, are continuing to work, whether they're gaining power or losing power. And uh, that's just somewhat of an art to, to making it happen. Well, I, I, I can, I'm looking at the clock right now because I could spend you know, a lot of time talking about that specific idea. Let, let's, let's transition to you're at Rackspace, you're leaving Rackspace, and you're going to start this new thing, and the halo effect is on your mind. Yeah, so I, you know, when I left Rackspace, I did what many exec, ex-executives of tech companies that have had some success do. I, I did angel investing. And I think that anyone who's been in tech who's uh, gotten some resources sort of says, hey, I'm going to do angel investing. I love startups. I started a small company. I'm going to help other small companies. And I made about 25 angel investments. And I was very, very close to uh, starting uh, an angel investing fund. And I, I really, I kept sort of having sort of a difficult time getting over the hump to actually do that because I could not figure out how I was have had some how I would have some unfair advantage is that there were a million people playing in that space and they were doing very similar things and I really had nothing unique to contribute and it felt like an overcrowded space um, and in a place where it would be very difficult for me to succeed and so um, I ended up through some friends um, we sort of sort of figured out this idea of instead of going and making really small investments in lots of different companies we would actually go buy companies 
that were struggling and there weren't many people who wanted to buy these companies. So there, there were not many players there. And um, there were there were a lot of companies that were poorly run and we could go have a big impact on them pretty quickly. And, you know, once we, we experimented with this idea and we saw some success with it, it was so clear to me that there was a halo there that it was an, uh, an inefficient space where there weren't many players where we could actually have a big impact and we could not only have fun and play to our strengths and the skills we had, but we could be successful and that the, we had to win behind our back and we, we weren't going to have to slug it out in a way where we, we, we didn't have a unique advantage. And so I really pivoted my, my life away from angel investing into the Scaleworks model where we started buying actual companies. And it's just a, a massively different model than I was doing before. Knock on wood, but we're having a lot of success. Uh, we're probably going to do our second fund here this year. And, and the companies are doing really well. And, um, you know, it's been a great way for me to invest my money. And, and I'm having a lot of fun and playing to my strengths. So I actually really went, I, I was really nervous about avoiding a negative halo and a place where I couldn't create easy advantage. Um, it's just, I'm just not that good. I like, I want to play in places where it's easy, <laughs> not where it's hard. Yeah. So. Well, it's a, again, it's a, it's a really fascinating idea and I'm having trouble articulating kind of what's going on in my head, but it's what you're describing is the opposite of almost what everybody else says, you know, work harder, uh, you know, you know, you have tons of experimentation and what you're, what you're, it seems like you're saying like start first above all of that and figure out where, like you said, there's not a lot of players, but there's a potentially big market or a lucrative market. And, um, that seems to be the most important thing. Yeah. Well, you know, if I mean, you don't want to work, if you don't want to slug it out for a living. Yeah. Well, all, all values created by doing things that others don't. I mean, this is a little bit of what the problem is of reading business books, which is that everyone's reading the same business books, trying to do the same things. And, you know, to me, the question is, where do you go find things that other people are not doing? This is where value is created. And you got to go find those places. And you want to go find those places where there's, there's natural reasons for you to potentially succeed, you know? And I, th- I just sort of think that the, the, what I like about the halo effect is it, it basically just sort of says, don't think your brilliance alone is enough. You need to go find tailwinds where you have the, the, the dynamics of the market and your competitors that are, that give you some advantage to start with. It just makes life much easier. And, um, we, you know, we've all been in, in businesses where things are going our way. And it's part of it is because people are executing well, but a lot of it is because the market dynamics are, 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 playing your way. And um, if you don't have that and you're, every single thing you're doing is a grind and very difficult, I think you got to go try and find a different halo. I'm, I'm really trying hard to resist the urge to ask you to tell me exactly how you did it because that's where, where my head goes. Um, <laughs> what, as you're deciding to start Scaleworks, you've already got a few experiences with the halo behind you. You've decided you're going to join an infrastructure company because the internet's going to win. You realize there's a competitor that might crush you if you kept going along that path and you decided, okay, we're going to get some tailwinds in this other uh, area, a niche maybe. Um, so you, you, you've done it a few times. What, what's going on in your head as you're starting Scaleworks? Obviously, you saw some patterns and we're trying to apply it. What what specifically, like, or maybe what kind of questions were you asking yourself? Well, I think you're just always looking for unfair advantage. I, I mean, I remember very well how we sort of stumbled into fanatical support. I mean, I, 
you know, um, fanatical support really, I mean, the story's been told probably many times, but the, it was really stumbled into by accident. I mean, the support operation of Rackspace was an afterthought. It really was viewed as a technology business first. And it got so bad that Graham and Morris went and hired David Bryce, who, you know, he was going to run support. So he was going to make it the best possible. And customers really responded to it. And I'll never forget when when uh, my first six months, we had a little survey that we'd send out all the new customers. And the first question was, why did you choose uh, Rackspace? And four months into it, just customer support kept coming up. Customer support, customer support. People were choosing us because of customer support. And we just were listening to this and we were good at it and we had a way to get better at it. And the demand for customer support was growing. But when we went and talked to analysts, uh, Gartner and Forrester and the people who wrote the reports about what mattered in hosting, and we told them support mattered, they, they just thought we were crazy. They absolutely thought we were crazy. And I think sort of some of this stuff just requires courage to say, well, you might not think it's right, but I'll tell you what, customers will love it and we can be different at it and we can own it. And it's an idea that we can own. And so, you know, I, I think that I'm just sort of constantly looking for what ideas work. Um, I mean, I just like ideas that work. They make things so much easier. And, um, and when things are really hard, you obviously don't have an idea that's working. And sometimes you have to grind through it. And sometimes what you have to do to find the new ideas is do a lot of experimentation and try lots of things. And so all that sort of rapid iteration and all this, that's, that's definitely part of what a startup is all about. But I think it's about in being in pursuit of the ideas that you can go, you know, bet the whole company on. And, um, you know, Graham used to sort of say there's, there's three or four decisions that created 90% of the value of Rackspace. And I think that's true with most companies. I think that when you really, when you really home in on the ideas that resonate with customers in the market, um, everything just gets easier and you look a lot smarter. You look a lot more effective. Um, you look like you're a better leader and manager than you actually are. It's just the truth. And, and, you know, not to put us down and not to say we didn't work hard and not to say we didn't do a lot of things right. But I think, I think the pursuit of great ideas is, is really the most important thing you can do in any business you have. And so would you agree with this statement that most of these tailwind ideas are things that people haven't done before? And so doing them is going to require, like you said, that courage. And where do you find the courage to say, Forrester doesn't get, doesn't have this right, we do, and we're going to go do it? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I think every person has to figure that out. I think that once you realize that the only way you're going to create value is by doing other things that other people don't, you know, it becomes much clearer. Um, you know, I, I just think most very successful entrepreneurs are willing to buck the trend. And, and part of what makes them so successful is their, um, they don't need to conform to things. They're, they actually, they're kind of natural rebels and they like breaking conventional wisdom uh, in many ways. And it doesn't mean you have to break it in every way. You have to do it in the most important, in the most important factors of your business. And I just think that that's, that's sort of the defin- definition of an entrepreneur is, is going and finding uh, new ways to add value to customers. I mean, that, that's just, that's just what it's all about. And by the way, I, I actually view this, you know, the, the halo effect. I mean, I, I love the book because it applies to lots of different things. And I, I mentioned something about like hiring. You know, one of the things I think about in hiring is imagine you're interviewing someone from Google. Um, you know, it is very tempting to think that they're super effective, super smart, have all sorts of great insights. But I'll tell you, they are part of a massive halo. 
And it is easy for lots of people to, that have worked at Google to look a lot more effective than they are. They had every single advantage going for them. You know, I'm really drawn to people who were in kind of crummy businesses and made it really work and found an angle and found a seam inside of a crummy business. And so I think these are the kinds of things you have to be very wary of is where are you sort of projecting brilliance where it doesn't actually exist? And um, so, you know, it's, it's these ideas, I think, can apply in lots of different places. You know, I'm assuming you apply this idea to the companies you buy and they, you, you buy them. I'm assuming you're going to look for, okay, there's, there's got to be a tailwind here that they haven't tapped into yet that we're going to find. Is that a process you go through with those companies? Yeah. Well, a lot of the businesses that, that we acquire, I think, um, one of their biggest sins is they are trying to become billion dollar businesses. And so, um, I'll give you an example. We bought a company called Keen, um, which is an analytics company and they had raised, around $35 million from Sequoia. So the number one VC in the world had given them a ton of money. And and really their strategy was to be the leading analytics service in the world, which is, that's a big idea. I mean, I don't even know what that means. That, that is such a huge <laughs> idea. And, um, you know, especially when you're competing with Google and Amazon and Microsoft and, and I mean, you name it, there's a, there's a million companies out there trying to be analytics companies. And so, but, you know, they'd raised so much money, they wanted to be a billion dollar company. Well, we bought it for a lot less money, and <laughs> we were very happy to make it a $20 million idea, a $25 million idea, a $30 million idea. And so very, we very quickly go, what is a niche of the world that, that we – what is a unique problem for a unique person that we can go solve this problem for? And we had the freedom to say, let's go find – let's go own one little sliver of the market and dominate it. And that's what we go looking for. So for almost every one of our businesses – um, you know, we call it category design is to figure out what little category we're going to go own, either a use case or a customer segment or whatever it might be and go own it because being, there's nothing like being number one for a certain customer use case. And since we don't have to swing for the fences, we can go do it. And that's really sort of at the core of what we do. And you, do you think that's a problem with just the, the whole Silicon Valley VC approach these days where everybody has to swing for the fences? I, I know that's part of your story with Scaleworks, which is, you don't need to do that. Um, but to what extent is that story of Keen raising $35 million trying to be a billion-dollar company cause problems for entrepreneurs? Well, I think all the time. You know, I mean, we hear about the winning stories, but there's a lot of Keens out there um, that, that really should have never – they never needed that much money. They never should have raised that money. And the founders could have done really nicely if they kept it small and stayed focused on the customers that they had and really sort of honed into a use case. Um, now, look. The, the, the big companies, it's, it's worth doing. I, I just generally, I'm generally believe that, you know, these, all these companies are raising way too much capital and it's getting them very unfocused. And I've seen it time and time again. Um, you know, I mean, look, I think if you're, I think the, there's a couple times where I think you need to raise a ton of capital. Uh, one is if you have a super R&D heavy project like electric cars or finding a cure for cancer. I mean, this requires lots of capital, lots of capital. Or if you want to go build a big consumer brand, building consumer brands is very expensive. But if you're doing a B2B service like all the ones we do, you know, I think finding a great use case and going to market to that unique sliver of customers, and then over time, you can always expand it, um, is really the way to go. And it's not very expensive. It seems to me like the kind of the common thread throughout all of these stories is find value for the customer. Don't listen to anybody else. When, and when you find a, a, a space where you can provide that value, 
go and dominate that space as long as it's big enough to make a, a business out of it. But there's a lot of those slivers out there yeah. that are untapped. Is that sound yeah, about right? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I, I just think it's also, I, I mean, I, at the core, just the I, the big ideas of the business to the customer really matter. I mean, how many times have, have you been around a company or in a company where they go, if we just could hire this genius VP of marketing, everything's going to be okay. And usually that doesn't turn out to be the thing that turns the company around. And um, if the genius VP marketing helps y'all come up with new ideas, that, that it is true. But just getting someone to execute better on an idea that the market doesn't care about just doesn't work. And you can you can build a great culture, but if you've got a a, a product that doesn't matter to someone um, or doesn't resonate with them, it's just it just won't matter. Your culture will be bad pretty quickly. By the way, um, is that this is a little bit of the story of the book, which is that. When a company's succeeding, everything looks good. You right. know, is everything looks good. But there's, but so many companies that are succeeding have different management styles, um, different kinds of CEOs. They have different executive structures. They have different performance review structures. They have different, they have different everything. There's lots of ways uh, to succeed inside a business, um, but it starts with these ideas. What surprised you the most about this entire process of using that idea to essentially make? most of the big decisions in your business career? I think what surprised me is that it's um, it's not something people want to spend time on. It's so much easier to spend time on returning that customer call or uh, doing that stand-up to see if, if we're going to hit our code release or talking about features or uh, changing this web page. It is so much easier to do the work of a business than to do the thinking of a business. And so, and, and it's very hard to come up with these ideas. It's, it's a very messy, slow process where you have, you have long meetings talking about it. And at the end of the meeting, after three or four hours of talking, you've really actually made no decisions and had no progress. And you say, let's do it again tomorrow or let's do it again next week and let's let it all soak in. And I think that people, you know, high achieving people in particular are not inclined to do that kind of work. They want to go do the tactical stuff, return your email, um, respond to sort of uh, tickets, do the work of the business. And so I think that this is why it's hard. And this is why people don't, don't get there is because you're not inclined to do this kind of work or make time for it. And it feels unproductive. Where do you find more people? So I imagine you would think that there should be more of these people around in, in, <laughs> in general and especially inside of, of businesses. How do you identify someone like that? How do you know the difference between someone who's just going to go grind away uh, on a bad idea versus somebody who's going to do that kind of work? Yeah, well, I mean, for inside our companies, I think that uh, Ed and I, um, as partners, and and we're sort of the board of every company. I mean, it's one of our principles is that we will do category design. I mean, we think there's riches and niches, and and we really want to go figure out the strategy of the business, and it's one of the main things we want to do with the CEOs, and so. Um, they all generally want help on it. And we, we, they're, they're, they're used to spending time on it and they devote spending time to it and they generally get engaged to do it. But they also appreciate the help because they realize that they probably wouldn't do it. They have so many demands. I mean, I think this is part of the beauty of us being able to sit outside the day to day of the business. Um, is that we don't have to deal with the grind of all the different elements that are happening, all the employee issues and all the customer issues and all, all the stuff that comes at you all day long in a business is that we can sort of say, look, we want to go off site for a half day and talk about the ideas of the business and what category can we own and what, what unique value can we bring to the customer? And, uh, we just force it to happen and everyone kind of knows they should do it, but they can almost need a coach or a forcing mechanism to do it. I really think they do. And so I, I think it's a little bit of 
companies just have to sort of decide they're going to do it. It's a little bit, I think there's a good use of consultants is you can hire a consultant to come help you with this and run the process because it forces you to do it. You pay a consultant to do it. Uh, it's a little bit like why we hire personal trainers. I mean, you know, we're paying someone $50 an hour to tell us to do push-ups. We know, we know we need to do push-ups. I mean, like, why do we have to pay someone to tell us to do push-ups? And I think that, I think doing strategic work around getting the big ideas of the company is very similar to that. It's, you know, you need to do it. You just don't get around to it. So you have to sort of force yourself. So we'll get to the results part, which I think might be difficult to pinpoint because of the subject matter. But um, maybe we can talk about some of the startups you've done. You're, you're taking underperforming companies, turning them around. How much value do you attribute to this idea of finding the value for the customer in a niche and producing a halo? Can you give us a, an example of one of those? Um, yeah, sure. I mean, uh, I mean, I would say um, we, we acquired a business called Assembla. Um, it was one of our first companies we acquired. And it was a code repo and project management uh, company. And it had been flat for three years. It was an eight or nine-year-old company. And it was really kind of the eighth place player in a very crowded space of code and repo players and highly undifferentiated. And, you know, we spent a bunch of time trying to figure out what could it be great at and uh, what, why could it really matter? We really sort of, we turned it into what we called enterprise cloud version control. So we got very focused on uh, the version control components of it, project management. There's lots of different winners in project, project management. And we focused on helping enterprises with super secure uh, code repositories. And um, this was an area where, there really wasn't someone really focused on it. There was GitHub, who was very much of a open source kind of project-based, you know, lots of collaboration, sort of the antithesis of security. And, um, you know, we went to market with it and we rebranded the entire company and um, we ended up getting really good traction with it. Uh, we ended up selling the company. Um, it, it drew the interest of, of uh, an acquirer. And, um, I mean, look, it ended up being sort of a very unique sliver of the market that we could actually go own. And... Again, it was not going to be a billion-dollar idea, but it was going to be plenty big for us, and it was going to be something that we could go, uh, go target uh, very particular customers and and create organic growth. Lou, this has been a fascinating discussion. I wish we could do this for another two hours. Yeah, um, me too. It's fun. It is, and, uh, and maybe we'll have you on in, in season two again. Um, uh, there's I, other books. There, there are there are other <laughs> books, but not but not as many as you would like. That's and right. We'll have to go find another one that is the anti business book there you go uh if people want to find out more about who you are and what you do where should they go uh go to lumormon.com i am uh i've got a little blog there that is usually not really about business um or you can find me on twitter at, at Lou Mormon. Uh, and then of course you can check us out at scaleworks so uh all all the information about the fund and the business we're building are at scaleworks.com thanks so much though okay take care Action Path is a production of Geekdom Media in association with Game Day Media Enterprises. Executive producers are Lorenzo Gomez III, John Garcia, Jason Barrera, and Michael Largent. If you want access to summaries and takeaways from hundreds of business books, check out Steve's company, Read It For Me, at readit4.me. That's readit4.me.